black people are two and a half times more likely to be hospitalized and 1.7 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than whites. That stat from the CDC is shocking, but it's not exactly surprising. Not to people like LA Times reporter Marissa Evans. On January 1st, my dad, Gary Evans, told our family of five that this was going to be our year. And by January 29th, he died in the ICU. Gary is now one of nearly 97,000 Black people in the United States who've died from COVID-19 complications. And while Marissa is willing to accept her father's death, she says she refuses to accept that losing all these Black men is normal or okay. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Friday, April 8th, 2022. Marissa Evans covers healthcare and communities of color in California for the Los Angeles Times. Marissa, welcome to The Times. Thank you. My condolences on the passing of your father, and I know it's a painful subject, but can you share what happened with him and COVID-19? My father and I had our initial New Year's Day call. He was eating apple pie, and he said, you know, this is going to be our year. That Monday, I got a call from him, and he said he had had this cough, and Clint, my brother, you know, said, you need to go get tested. I was on CVS, I was on Walgreens, you name it, anywhere where you can kind of get one of those next day tests, those rapid tests, and it was just, it was like not not available, not available. By January 6th, he figured out he had tested positive. I distinctly remember I was driving when he told me. My heart sank a little bit because our immediate family had stayed safe for so long. So I'm like just drilling him with questions. Okay, like, are you coughing? Are you feeling any aches? Are you feeling any pains? He's like, well, I'm talking to you, so I feel fine. I feel fine. You know, it's just like a bad cold. And I kept telling him, it's not a bad cold, it's COVID. At the time, like the mindset wasn't, it was anything more than just his cough. This evening of January 6th, I made a Costco run. I was at Vons. I was at all the different grocery stores because we had to treat both my parents like they might have COVID. The first couple of weeks, he was just coughing, sniffling. It seemed like mild symptoms. And we were so grateful he was vaccinated, boosted. So it, it wasn't that fear of, he should have gotten vaccinated. Why didn't he get vaccinated, thankfully? And so those first couple of weeks, it seemed like, okay, it seems pretty mild, so that's good. He wasn't sleeping well, but he was still eating. He still had his appetite, which felt like a good sign. And we felt like, okay, you know, we might get through this. As scary as it's been, we might get through this. And he was starting to complain about having to wear a mask. He was complaining he couldn't go outside and Honestly, I thought, okay, if he's complaining, he might be feeling better. So He's being dad, basically. <laughs> yeah, he's being dad, yes. He's complaining he can't go to Starbucks or Barnes & Noble or he can't go outside to drive, you know. All right, he might be fine. Around MLK weekend, he was supposed to go eventually get a new test. And I had made a delivery mid-month at that point. More masks, more tea, more lemons. 
more soup. He seemed like he was going to be fine, so I just kind of went about my business and got the call from my mom that he, when he went out to go get a COVID test, he was in an actual parking lot waiting in line in the car, and he had to pull the car over in the parking lot because he wasn't feeling right. And it turns out he was having shortness of breath, and he fell out in the parking lot. He never made it to that appointment to get the second test because uh, he, he was having trouble breathing that morning. And thankfully, there were physicians and other doctors around to kind of help him and call the ambulance and take him to the emergency room. But it was scary to get that call. Initially, we thought he was going to be in there for several days. He was able to get his own private room. And he had his own hospital room phone. And when I talked to him, he said, you know, Marissa, I'm in a five-star hospital room. I can see the hills. Clint, he got me this, these great magazines, I, the National Geographic. You know, I love National Geographic. And, you know, the nurses are so nice. And, you know, oh, they were so impressed when I told them you work for the Los Angeles Times. And I said, you know, Dad, can we focus? <laughs> that was my father, just always endlessly proud. At this point, we've been told it's not just COVID, it's COVID and pneumonia. He still wasn't really breathing right. It was very hard for him to cough things up. At that point, he was actually coughing up a little bit of blood in between that too. So the last thing I he talked about was how tired he felt. And I said, you know, a lot of people with COVID are tired. You know, a lot of people feel that consistent fatigue. And I told him, you know, you might feel this way for a really long time. It might not be that you feel how you normally feel. And my dad said, well, I really hope not. I really, really hope not. And that was the last time I spoke to him. Um, the doctor said, you know, based off his symptoms, you need to take him to back to the emergency room. So we took him to a different hospital and overnight they intubated him. There's always a part of me that always wonder and wish that we had been able to just talk to him one more time before he was intubated. And I don't know if, if anyone who listens has ever seen someone intubated. It's not pretty. It's very jarring to see a loved one who's usually vibrant and lively with a full of a million questions, just unable to speak, unable to even fully ascertain what's going on around them. They can hear, but they can't really see. And, you know, my father with his anxiety, you know, that was a lot. We really have to prep him before we do anything because he gets so anxious. We were able to video call him in the ICU. My two brothers talked to him about sports. My father was a big sports fan, so I know my brothers were trying to talk to him about the games that were going on. Talked about the Padres and Fernando Tatis, and maybe we'll one day be able to, to take out the Dodgers, who he also kind of rooted for because he's from Brooklyn. Those same Dodgers came from Brooklyn, so he's like, hey, I can root for both teams. I'm like, hey, you know, it kind of doesn't work like that. I would tell him, I know nothing about sports, you know this. So I eventually switched over to just reading him The Hobbit. That was my first time having a loved one in the ICU. And I felt like the only way I could really stay on with him for a couple of hours was reading something. You know, we were reading about Bilbo and the goblins, <laughs> the giants. And as I was reading it aloud, I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of good. I understood then why he 
really loved those books. We were really trying to discuss, okay, what does the next step look like? And we felt like, okay, we can just get to February. We might be all right. He might be all right. And, you know, I drove back to L.A., had just settled back into my apartment for the evening when my brother called and said, the hospital just called 10 minutes ago. Uh, We need to get down here right away. Uh, Your dad's heart just stopped. You're trying to compute. You're always okay if if there's a a next step. So I just said, hey, um, well, so what are our next steps? And I said, we're gonna gonna try to revive him for the next 30 minutes. And if that doesn't work, we're gonna call it. I'm like. He's like, you know, if you wanna say goodbye, you have to come back. I distinctly remember, I was like, Clint, I just got back to LA though. He said, I know, but you have to come back. I raced to my car, I hop on the 78 East. And I got there in time to say goodbye to him. And he looked really at peace. I was just like squeezing his hand and just really, like just trying to get like that last feeling of his hand in my hand. I was able to take out my phone and pull up The Hobbit and I just read him some more pages of The Hobbit. And, um, you know, I told him, I'm sorry we didn't have more time to finish the book or to have more time together. If life is supposed to be long, I'm only 31 years old. So I'm just supposed to be without him for at least 40, 50, maybe 60 years. Like, no more phone calls. I type something into my search bar on the iPhone and, um, you know, you type in a couple letters and it still links to a text message from my dad. No more asking a million questions about my day. No more asking if I've eaten. No more asking what I watched on TV. No more telling me I work too much. No one to bake chicken pot pies for. I've just been really trying to wrap my mind around, you know, how do I cope? You know, how do I keep being a good daughter, keep being a good journalist, keep being all of these things I still want to be in this life. We'll continue the story of Marissa's family after a quick break. Marissa, Sadly, your dad's battle with COVID-19, it wasn't the first time he faced a health problem. What were some of his experiences with the healthcare system over the years? You know, my dad had quite a few health problems over the years. It started around a few months after he turned 55. In 2006, he had his first heart attack. Just as I had gone off to college, he was diagnosed with kidney and prostate cancer. He had a stroke several years later after that. So my father had really been through the ringer quite a bit. You know, on top of all of that, he was diagnosed as an older adult with depression and anxiety, which was really difficult for him. My father was a pretty religious person, always thinking about being positive and 
vibrant and the power of positive thinking. That was, I think, really challenging for him as well on a physical and mental level to be experiencing these health problems. So then when you're thinking about his time in the healthcare system and having to deal with now all of these doctors and cardiologists and different specialists, and particularly after his stroke in 2016, he had to start getting even more blood test appointments. So he would experience these times where there would be a moment where he did try to advocate for himself. You know, when my father tried telling the nurse, you know, I have small veins, please use the smaller needle because you're not going to get it otherwise. And for them to not listen to him and then only realizing failed attempts later to draw blood, oh, we do need the smaller needle. That's the type of stuff that just, that doesn't inspire someone to want to advocate for themselves. No, that stays with you. And that makes you get turned off to the very people who are there. And this, your dad, he had health insurance, a primary care doctor, specialist. He had full access to health care. And yet even he was dreading going to the doctor. Right. And I think that's the problem with how we talk about health care. It starts and stops at does this person have access to a doctor? And I think too often politicians, different healthcare sector advocates just simply say, well, we just need to get them to the doctor and it will be fine. You know, we'll do all this preventive medicine if they just get to the doctor. And we know that's not true. That is not true. I mean, it's one thing to enter into the room but people forget it's also about how you're treated when you're in the room. And that was what my father experienced all of the time, not feeling like he could ask questions, not feeling like he could really advocate for himself. There was nothing more that I wanted, quite frankly, than to be right there next to my father during those doctor appointments, just to be there with him, just to show you know, strengthen numbers, if you will, and be helping him ask those questions. I tried telling him, maybe we should just go over questions you want to ask. Maybe we can write them down. And he said, well, you know, Marissa, these doctors don't have a lot of time. And that's so unfortunate to me. My father had a lot of different health problems, but overall, he had a decent quality of life. He had all of these things that were in his favor by the ability just to go to the doctor because he had transportation, because he had health insurance, because he had access to food, he could afford his medications. And my dad took quite a bit of medications because of his heart problems. So all of these things, and yet the thing that bothered him the most wasn't having to take all those pills. It was not knowing how his doctors were gonna treat him that day when he went into that room. And as you wrote in your essays, it wasn't just your dad. Black men just often avoid the healthcare system for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned in the specific case of your dad. But what do you think needs to change so more black men can get that confidence and that care that they need and deserve from a system that they're often very skeptical, if not straight up scared of? You know, I really try to think about that question a lot when my dad died. You know, how do we save Black men? How do we save Black boys even, right? Because it starts young. It starts so, so young. Yeah. 
And I kept coming back to the same conclusion that feels so basic to me, but it's being listened to. It's having your pain taken seriously. It's telling them it's okay if you need to cry right now. Things that I think a lot of people take for granted, Black men can't always do. Black boys cannot always do either. Not because they cannot do it. It's because society is saying you cannot do that. And knowing the difference matters a lot when we're thinking about how do we come up with a more equitable healthcare system. Yeah, and it plays out in the real world, especially with COVID. What stats shows this inequity when it comes to health and Black men? I mean, it's heart attacks, it's the cancers, it's all of these injuries that Black men are seeing. And now it's COVID. That's the thing that struck me most. One of the things I looked up, like maybe a few hours after my father died, is the life expectancy of Black men. My father died at 70, and 70 is young. I don't care what anyone says. 70 is... 70 is nothing. He just turned 70 in June. It's nothing. So he didn't even get to see his first full year as a 70-year-old man. Like that will always be wild to me. That will always be heartbreaking to me. And I started looking it up and that's when I found the stat that said, because of COVID, on top of all of these other ongoing health disparities, Black men have lost 3.3 years of their lives an average life expectancy. Meanwhile, white men only lost 1.3 years of life. How do we justify that inequity? How do we say this is just an inevitability? And I think that's part of the problem that we've seen, right, with the pandemic is how many people have said, well, Black and brown people, they have these health disparities. And so, yeah, you know, they're at risk, but, you know, what are you going to do? It just seems like The alarm isn't always there. And I think that's part of the problem. It shouldn't take losing people of color as a whole for there to feel like there's an emergency. And I think when we're thinking about how do we think about equity in our healthcare system, it needs to be more about how do we do preventive measures? But at the same time, I really wish it didn't always take Black people dying for people to start caring. I wish it didn't always take someone being in extreme, excruciating pain for there to be this idea of like, you know what? I'm just starting to realize maybe Black people do feel pain. Maybe Black people are dying in higher levels than they should be. Maybe we should do something about that. That's the thing. Progress always requires so much pain and death. And I really wish it didn't. It makes me sad to hear you say that because my mom was the opposite of that. Like she passed away from ovarian cancer three years ago and she was someone who loved to go to the doctor to ask questions, everything. And that, I mean, she took care of herself. But when it came to that cancer, those doctors would just ignore all the pain she was having. They'd say, oh, it's something gastronomical. It's something this and something that. And then finally, once like, one day, my dad always says one day he's like, you know what? I've had enough. My wife is feeling way too much pain. I'm going to go and like just make a ruckus. Finally, she was able to go to 
um, you know, basically get radiology or whatever. And by then they found out that she had stage four B cancer. Like she, she, she was dead within a year. She, so she did what she was supposed to do, but at that point it was too late. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem though, right? We wait until it's too late or there's, doesn't feel like an incentive to be that driving force, that hard charging force in the doctor's office. And I think people have to understand too, it's about the perception of what it looks like when a Black person or a person of color in general tries to question a doctor, particularly one who doesn't look like them. The perception is definitely different. And particularly when you're thinking about the dynamics between a white doctor or healthcare professional and a Black or Brown person, whether it's intended to be there or not, there's always going to be that bit of a wall because a white person, for example, getting upset about having their arm dug into is going to be received a lot differently than, say, my father, a Black man, being upset in a medical setting. And that's the thing. My father never wanted to cause problems. He never wanted to look like he was inconveniencing people. He never wanted to potentially seem like he was trying to embarrass somebody by asking questions or by asking for someone else to help him if he wasn't feeling comfortable. So all of those things add up to what we're seeing right now in our healthcare system where it's been very difficult to get people back into doctor's offices. I think people are definitely returning for their needed care that they've put off because of COVID. But beyond that, I also wonder how many people have become so jaded by what they've seen, that they're not going to go back or they're going to delay going back. And that could be really deadly or really costly or really painful. But I also think it's so important that we take the time to acknowledge that there are really wonderful doctors and nurses out there. There are wonderful specialists who really do care about the patients who really are trying to keep in mind the racial dynamics at play in a doctor's office or any medical setting, be it a hospital or a community clinic, I think there are people trying to do the work, trying to think about it in terms of populations and systems and social determinants of health. People are doing that work, but we need it on a more systemic, wider, institutional level as well. It can't just be the few, the proud clinics and hospitals trying to do that work. It needs to be a sustained effort across all actors within the healthcare system. So it's not just the hospitals or your doctor's office. It's also the health insurance providers, right? It's also the billing departments. It's also all of these different people who make up our healthcare system. How do we make it accessible? But also how do we make sure people are having a quality experience when they do step into our centers of care? More after the break. So finally, Marissa, what pushed you to write and publicly talk about your father's death and 
what do you want people to know or, or to take away, to use that cliche, about what happened? I think I felt a push to write about my father because I really loved him. I mean, I still do love him. And I'm a daughter and a sister before everything. But the journalist in me also thought a lot about how even with all of my knowledge about the healthcare system, in terms of advocating for yourself, in terms of thinking about policies and systems and the right questions to ask and things like that, I still couldn't always help my father in the way I really wanted to. I knew as well that our story is not necessarily as unique. It's unique because I happen to have this expertise and it's unique because I'm a journalist with the Los Angeles Times, but our ICU story is not unique. There are so many people who have experienced exactly what we've experienced before, have experienced the pain of not knowing, have experienced that scare, that first shock in the heart when you get that call saying your loved one is gone. I know we're not alone. And I think that was the point of the piece is to make sure people don't feel alone in these experiences. And the big thing my father talked a lot about when he was alive was the importance of kindness and the importance of trying to help others. So I think with the response to the piece, I think he would just be so tickled knowing that people have felt helped by this, his experience. Even though he didn't publicly talk about these experiences when he was alive, I think he would be heartened to know how many people have experienced similar things as him and how many people have felt less alone because of his story. Marissa, thank you again for just sharing your family story with us. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, airplane fumes, Earth Day, school desegregation, and so much more. Shannon Lynn was the hef on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmina Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eapin. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in this month. Gracias. Hold up. 